The Fed's monetary system appears at first to be a vicious cycle, something that will just always exist and never end. A roller coaster that someone else put you on but you can't get off. The cycles of creating money, persistent inflation, and every few years, a financial crisis. Everything becomes more expensive while everything else feels more out of reach, waiting for the next shoe to drop. The cumulative feeling might best be described as a combination of exhausting and suffocating, particularly at a time when the world seems to be more volatile and the future more uncertain than ever. The matters are made worse when the cause and effect cannot be explained. Without prior understanding, it puts people in a position of not knowing what actions to take, when it will end, or if it will end. Without explanation and without a solution to the problem, it might be very reasonable to assume the vicious cycle will never end. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We have got a great read today. Parker Lewis is back in the house. I am Guy Swan, your host and narrator for today, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We've got Bitcoin is not a hedge. This is the 18th installment. We are back into the Gradually Then Suddenly series. And um, uh, this is another great installment. As everybody knows who's listened to this show for any length of time, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Gradually Then Suddenly series. I think he does such a good job hitting like each main idea uh, or I guess generally misconception about Bitcoin and just flat out tears them apart one by one. But I really liked this one. Um, like addressing this issue because I have gone back and forth on this a lot. And I think Parker makes a really, really strong argument for just kind of staying away from that conversation or staying away from that framing entirely of calling it an inflation hedge because an inflation hedge is very different. It's, it might seem like a subtle or inconsequential difference, there is a fundamental and significant difference, especially with how you think about it and how it should move or what would you, what you would expect the price to do, which you just shouldn't. Um, uh, you don't want to give the impression that it's supposed to do one thing at one time because you just have no idea. But there's a very fundamental difference between something that is an inflation hedge and something that is an, a money that is inflation proof. And Parker Lewis does a really good job of kind of realigning, setting, setting the arrow in the right direction on how to think about this, I think. So um, we will get right into it. I just want to thank our amazing sponsors that keep this show alive really quick. Swan Bitcoin is going to get you into Bitcoin and create you a Bitcoin buying and set up foundation and hold your own keys and teach you about Bitcoin. CoinKite. He's going to give you all of the hardware and all of the security and everything you need, the tools you need to keep your Bitcoin safe, to have it in your possession sovereignly and safely. And Fold is going to fix fiat for you and pay you sats 
for when you still have to use dollars. I just got 2% back on the largest bill I have for the month, and I'm happy. I'm a happy man. I have over 16 million sats stacked on Fold just for using the Fold debit card everywhere I go instead of an old, boring, normal bank card. And with even more sats back on gift cards for major retailers like Amazon. I've used nothing but gift cards on Amazon for more than a year. These three together make the tripod of a Bitcoin life. Check them out. You got links and good stuff and discounts in the show notes. With that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, Bitcoin is not a hedge by Parker Lewis. Number 18 in the Gradually Then Suddenly series. Bitcoin is often described as a hedge, or more specifically, a hedge against inflation. Chamath Palihapitiya, respected in many circles as a venture capitalist, once described Bitcoin on CNBC as schmuck insurance, qualifying that it's the single best hedge against the traditional financial infrastructure just in case. Hedging typically refers to hedging risk. An oil producer may hedge by selling an oil commodity future, locking in future revenue at a certain price to avoid the risk of interim price volatility. Inflation hedges more broadly are geared toward investments or derivatives that will offset the risk of general price inflation. Historically, these typically include the likes of gold, real estate, commodities, and more recently, stock indexes, anything that would be most expected to, quote, increase in value as an offset to the dollar decreasing in value. In essence, an inflation hedge is intended to counter the risk and the expectation of the dollar losing its purchasing power. More generally, individuals and businesses hedge to reduce future uncertainty. An outcome which presents risk might be possible or probable, but to varying degrees the future is inherently unknown. Hedges protect against the potential adverse impact of different future scenarios, which may or may not occur. It is similar to the idea of schmuck insurance in the context that Palihapitiya uses it. There is a generally understood risk that the men and women who manage U.S. fiscal and monetary policy might screw up the dollar economy, materially or completely. In this scenario, there is an argument to be made that Bitcoin has at least a chance to be an alternative financial system, which could be viewed as, quote, insurance should the schmucks create a mess. Regardless of the cause or the degree, the dollar is expected to lose purchasing power, and it presents risk worth hedging. In a worst-case scenario, the dollar could be broken beyond repair, and Bitcoin offers the promise of a currency system with a fixed supply. Realistically, it should meet the classical definition of either an inflation hedge or schmuck insurance, as both are most commonly understood. While it may meet the classical definition, any view of Bitcoin as a hedge or as insurance in the traditional sense misses the most fundamental aspect of Bitcoin on a wholesale basis. Bitcoin is not a hedge against inflation. It is the permanent solution to inflation, and those are two very different things. Bitcoin might be volatile, but over a long time horizon, it is not a risk. Risk and volatility are commonly conflated, but in reality are similarly very different. 
Volatility can present a risk depending on time horizon, but it is not inherently the same as risk. Risk speaks to future uncertainty, and hedges against risk intend to reduce future uncertainty. Bitcoin may not be widely or well understood yet, but it is more knowable than it is uncertain. The gap is one of knowledge rather than risk. The Fundamental Value of Bitcoin All value in Bitcoin derives from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million, and it is possible to know or to form an understanding as to how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply and whether it is credible. That is knowable, and it is the most fundamental basis to explain how and why Bitcoin is competing with the dollar as money. Every inflation hedge is intended to earn more dollars or appreciate in dollar terms to offset inflation, whereas Bitcoin is structurally designed as a replacement, which is a critical distinction. Competition may signal chance or uncertainty, but there is objectivity and empirical evidence, 14 years or 770,339 blocks, to inform the outcome. If A, then B. If Bitcoin credibly enforces its fixed supply of 21 million, then it will replace the dollar, euro, yen, pound, peso, etc., as the currency which facilitates practically all day-to-day -day commerce in each respective local economy. See Bitcoin obsoletes all other money, link provided. If A is knowable, then B is knowable. Just because any particular individual might not know A and might not understand the causal relationship to B, that does not make the equation unknowable. In the dollar world, inflation is a man-made phenomenon. Most simply, new money is created by the Federal Reserve, and each unit purchases less in the future as a result. In the mainstream economic circles and high finance, there are many prevailing theories as to what causes price inflation, but look no further than the supply of dollars. What principally confuses people is how the increase in the supply of dollars is transmitted through the economy, and specifically to the dollar price of real goods and services. This is one place where common sense prevails. If more dollars are created, each dollar will purchase less because the creation of more dollars cannot and does not increase the supply of real goods and services available in the economy. Human time at an individual level is finite, but the supply of money is not. The Federal Reserve has flooded the market with trillions of dollars since the Great Financial Crisis, eight trillion to be specific, which has increased the dollars in circulation by about 10x. Dollars are becoming more and more abundant, and as the money supply increases, the purchasing power of each dollar declines. When money loses its purchasing power, it is the equivalent of an hour of work being guaranteed to purchase less than the value actually delivered in the past. All else being equal, it amounts to a barrel of oil produced today purchasing less than a barrel of oil in the future. The incentive structure breaks entirely when money is created at no cost, and the problem is not static. As more time passes and more money is created, 
the purchasing power of value delivered at various points in the past degrades further and further until it eventually purchases nothing of comparable value or time to produce. In substance, it results in people having delivered value in the past and never having the value returned. To use an extreme for illustrative purposes, imagine you spent 40 hours in a week working for $10 per hour, $400 in total. Then consider the consequence if the dollar's value were to hyperinflate, effectively trending to zero over a short period. That would translate to a week of time which you can never get back and which would purchase you nothing in the future. In the practical application of hyperinflation, it is not just a week that is lost, but instead entire life savings. It is a path to sure ruin, but really anything on the spectrum of currency devaluation is similarly problematic. Time is required to produce work, which translates to goods and services. Any time expended in the past, saved in a form of money which purchases less in the future, creates a deficit. As dollars become massively more abundant and time remains finite, past, present, and future, more dollars compete for a relatively fixed quantity of goods and services. People value each dollar less and charge more dollars for each unit of their time in an attempt to reduce the deficit created by more money having been created and to offset the expectation of future degradation. More dollars, same amount of time. Inflation is that simple, but the consequence is not. The mistake most people make, especially academics, is believing it can go on forever. Just print a little bit of money or even a lot and things, i.e. goods and services, will merely cost more dollars. What's the big deal? The Fed has been doing this for decades, nearly a century. If money were as simple as basic math, it might be the case. But in reality, the function of money is highly complex and consequential. Money coordinates practically all economic activity, functionally by facilitating trade between every person for all goods and services. The creation of money, especially at little to no cost, does not just cause the value of the currency to depreciate, it fundamentally impairs that currency's ability to coordinate economic activity. Hyperinflation does not occur simply because too much money was printed in an arithmetic sense. Instead, it is the distortion of money which actually makes trade more difficult and which causes imbalances that ultimately lead to supply chains breaking down. Yes, the currency becomes more abundant, but the basic goods necessary for survival, like the delivery of energy, become more scarce at the same time as the incentive structure of the money becomes increasingly fractured. In each instance of hyperinflation, history has shown this to be true. The currency fails completely because of the breakdown in trade, the principal function which money helps to facilitate and coordinate. The incremental error would be to believe or hope there is something different in the case of the dollar. There is no better when it comes to massively debasing a currency. The function by which the currency breaks down to the point of not functioning is all the same. Avoiding the reason and logic does not change any future reality. It is predictable and knowable, albeit a bit uncomfortable. 
But human beings are collectively intelligent, adaptable, and resilient, which is core to survival and progress. Dealing within reality is not dystopian. It is just reality. And those that thrive through adversity are the ones that best adapt. And it is also why Bitcoin is such a great source of optimism and hope for those who do adapt. Bitcoin provides a light at the end of the tunnel, a solution to the ultimate problem. If not for a solution in hand, it might be very reasonable to be pessimistic about the future. Thankfully, the world has already adapted to create a solution to the broken structure of the dollar. Most people just don't know it yet. If the problem is the printing of money, then the antidote is a form of money that cannot be printed, which is what Bitcoin represents. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, and that is the fundamental value of Bitcoin. The Complexity of the Dollar System and Inflation I want to pause for a second right here and just explain that you don't own Bitcoin if you have it on an exchange. You just don't. Get it behind your keys, not someone else's. And please use a hardware wallet. Even better if it's air-gapped, like the cold card Mark IV. If you have any significant Bitcoin savings, a meaningful amount, dear God, please don't leave it exposed on, like, a mobile wallet, or, and just, just don't, don't leave it with a custodian anywhere. Everyone can get hacked. That's why you only put a small amount in a hot wallet, and you keep your main savings in the coldest of cold storage, the cold card. You can get 5% off the cold card Mark IV with code BitcoinAudible, and you can go to the link right there in the show notes. It's guyswan.com slash cold card. And CoinKite has, the company, has tons of other great hardware security solutions. They've got stuff for multi-sig, uh, they've got more versatile uses, um, and they've got the SATS card that you can hand out and give people like physical Bitcoin, like the Open Dime, and... Uh, you can use hardware wallets with the mobile device. The cold card has NFC if you want to use it so that you can get the security of the hardware but the simplicity of the mobile interface. Seriously, there's no downside. Check it out. The link, discount code, and everything you need to keep your SAT safe is right in the description. For now, let's get back to Bitcoin is not a hedge. The complexity of the dollar system and inflation. Even still, the question does remain. Why has the purchasing power of Bitcoin declined more recently relative to the dollar? If more dollars are being created, if dollar inflation is increasing, if Bitcoin does have a fixed supply, and if all the other prior logic were to be true. This is the most common question I have heard over the past 12 months. The skeptic will exclaim, But I thought Bitcoin was supposed to be a hedge to inflation, and there is inflation. What gives? That's the thing. It's not a hedge. People cannot flee to any good, but especially not to Bitcoin for, quote, safety without prior understanding or knowledge. Few people have a deep understanding of Bitcoin, and even fewer the dollar. But more people rely on the dollar today than Bitcoin. That is the unavoidable state of the world, and the dollar system is in the critical path to understanding how facts, which otherwise might seem to contradict each other, are actually perfectly consistent. There is material dollar inflation in goods and services, yet the dollar's value has been appreciating 
relative to virtually every other asset as well as all other currencies, including Bitcoin, over the past year. What explains this reality? Because something must, and it is not merely a coincidence. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI measure of inflation in the U.S., the most commonly used benchmark, started to accelerate in the first half of 2021. And year-over-year, year, CPI inflation has exceeded 7.5% in each of the past eight months. Looking back two years, price levels in September 2022 were 14% higher compared to September 2020, which is approximately how much less the dollar in your bank account can purchase today versus just 24 months ago. In response to this acceleration, the Federal Reserve signaled to the market that it would pursue a concerted effort to reduce inflation in the fall of 2021, and it ultimately began to raise interest rates from zero as a means to that end in March 2022. Cumulatively, the Fed raised interest rates seven individual times in 2022, to the tune of 4.25% in total rate increases, with a current targeted Fed funds rate, the rate off of which virtually all other market interest rates are set, between 4.25% and 4.5%. At these levels, the current Fed funds effective rate is higher than any level dating back to just before the financial crisis in early 2008. About a year prior to the initial acceleration in inflation, the Federal Reserve took emergency measures to massively increase the supply of dollars in the financial system. From September 2019 to September 2021, the Fed increased the money supply by $4.7 trillion, more than doubling the amount of dollars in circulation. It was a near redux of the great financial crisis. In September 2019, a large overnight funding market commonly known as the repo market, experienced significant instability, and market interest rates tripled. Not coincidentally, this occurred as the Fed was actually in the process of gradually reducing the supply of dollars. Contagion spread, and instability became more acute as the global economy was soon thereafter shut down, which resulted in an even more drastic increase in the amount of money that was created. The inflation currently present, and which began to accelerate in early 2021, all ties back to the cumulative increase in the supply of dollars over the past few years and decades. This is the Fed's system. Print money, cause inflation, raise interest rates, cause financial instability, and repeat. The aggressive increase in the supply of money followed by aggressive increases in interest rates, and vice versa, creates economic chaos. Asset prices today in dollar terms indexed to the price levels prior to the most recent epoch of money printing, September 2019, demonstrate a cumulative devaluation of the dollar, which is consistent with the trend of CPI inflation of goods and services. Compared to September 2019, each Bitcoin, the S&P 500, gold, and oil are all more expensive today in dollar terms, with long-term treasury bonds actually losing purchasing power and Bitcoin outperforming each of the others. However, if you isolate for the period after which the Fed began to signal interest rate increases, approximately the last 12 months, to tame inflation, all asset prices have declined relative to the dollar, despite goods inflation remaining elevated. Bitcoin has outperformed each of the other benchmark assets on a cumulative basis, 
but it has also had the largest correction from a year ago. Undoubtedly, the failures of many counterparties which trade Bitcoin have impacted the extent of Bitcoin's correction, but the driving force behind the more fundamental shift in asset price levels, for which Bitcoin is not immune, has everything to do with the shift in the Fed's monetary policy, the marginal increase in interest rates and decrease in the supply of dollars. While Bitcoin is material in size, approximately $350 billion in purchasing power today, it remains small relative to global financial assets, which are estimated between $300 trillion to $400 trillion. For context, the S&P 500 has a current market capitalization of $30 trillion, and while it might have only declined by 11.5% over the past 12 months, that decline equates to nearly $4 trillion in paper wealth that has disappeared, which is over 10x the present total purchasing power of Bitcoin. Comparatively, total debt system-wide in the U.S. is $92 trillion, with federal government debt alone standing in excess of $26 trillion. The market value of bonds in the U.S. has similarly declined by multiple trillions over the past 12 months. In short, nothing is immune to the dollar so long as it is the 800-pound gorilla. And scale matters, especially when considering volatility. The dollar economy is the largest financial system in the world, by a wide margin. There is no getting around that the dollar is the primary global funding currency, and it remains the currency which facilitates by far the most global commerce. As goes the dollar, so goes the world. Or rather, as goes the Federal Reserve, so goes the world, at least today. Massive shifts by the Fed in managing U.S. monetary policy impact all assets, not just Bitcoin. When the Fed reduces the supply of dollars and increases interest rates, all asset prices become pressured. Liquid assets typically get sold first, the easiest to sell, to source dollars in an attempt to shore up balance sheets and to fund future obligations on dollar-denominated debt liabilities. Over the short term, Bitcoin might be disproportionately impacted due to its relative size and its nascency, which contribute to volatility up and down, but every asset traded for dollars is impacted. Chart of the supply of dollars versus dollar-denominated debt in trillions of dollars. This chart best explains everything that matters in regard to the dollar and its machinations, why inflation does not simply mirror the increase in supply of dollars, why Bitcoin can intermittently decline in purchasing power despite all the cumulative money printing and goods inflation, why it is and always has been a certainty that the supply of dollars will increase drastically from any point in time, and importantly, why Bitcoin will replace the dollar. Today, there is approximately $92 trillion in dollar-denominated debt in the U.S. credit system, but there are only 9 trillion actual dollars. Despite the money supply having increased by nearly 10x since before the financial crisis, there remains over $10 of dollar-denominated debt for every dollar that exists today. Only dollars can pay dollar-denominated debt, and in this context, dollar debt only includes the most vanilla of anything that could be considered debt, 
bona fide fixed maturity fixed liability debt as estimated and reported by the Fed. Mortgages, credit cards, student loan, auto loan, bank debt, corporate bonds, and federal, state, and local government debt, etc. It does not include estimates of unfunded pension liabilities or derivatives of debt, merely a fixed amount of dollars owed at a defined future point in time. The Fed may have massively increased the supply of dollars, but the world is still short dollars, dollars which are owed and must be demanded in the future to repay existing debt obligations. There is too much debt, dollars owed in the future, relative to dollars that actually exist. When the Fed shifts its monetary policy, as it did over the past year, to raise the cost of dollar-denominated debt and reduce the supply of dollars, the market begins to figure out the unavoidable arithmetical fact that the system is far more than just a few dollars short. The market as a whole begins to scramble for dollars, selling assets, raising prices, reducing expenses, raising more debt even at higher cost. Every possible avenue is pursued. Not all debts are due tomorrow, far from it, and not everyone is in debt. But as a whole, the market as a whole is heavily indebted to the tune of 10 to 1. And as dollar financing conditions tighten, the instinct to source and save more dollars to fund future obligations is overwhelmingly one way. It all happens at the same relative time because it is actually caused by the Fed's actions as an input, reducing the supply of dollars and increasing the cost to refinance dollar-denominated liabilities. When the Fed reduces the supply of dollars and increases interest rates, the amount of debt in the system does not magically change. Recall the $92 trillion in dollar-denominated debt. Instead, there are just fewer dollars to repay the outstanding debts, and it becomes more expensive to sustain existing debt levels. Necessarily, not all debts can be repaid. Now, given the embedded degree of system leverage, that is actually always the case, regardless of what the Fed ever does next. But the market, individually and collectively, just figures out that the magnitude of the problem is far larger and the timing more present as interest rates rise and the supply of dollars is actively reduced. The Fed may have begun signaling its plans just over a year ago, but it did not actually start increasing interest rates until March 2022, and it did not begin to reduce the supply of dollars until June 2022. Somewhere therein is when the time bomb really started ticking. As a matter of record, the Fed has been more aggressive in raising interest rates in 2022 than in any time post the Great Financial Crisis of 2008, and it has withdrawn approximately $350 billion in dollars from the financial system relative to its most recent height over the past six months. While that may only be roughly 3.5% of all dollars, it's still a massive amount of dollars on an absolute basis and it represents marginal dollars that are no longer available to fund liabilities. The credit system today is also roughly 75% larger than it was in 2008. Because every dollar is leveraged 10 to 1, the reduction in the supply of dollars has an outsized impact on the financial system as a whole. 
but also remember that the system was already far more than a dollar short. The directional shift does matter, but maybe most consequentially because it wakes the world up to a larger problem that already existed and is actively being magnified. It might seem simple, but that is the point. Everything happening, each significant economic shift, can be explained by the amount of dollars that exist, the amount of debt that exists, the change in supply of dollars, and the change in the cost to finance debt. The existence of a debt or credit system that is an order of magnitude larger than the amount of money that actually exists causes a few dynamics that may not be immediately intuitive. When the Fed digitally creates money, there is still far more debt that exists, which is what prevents the dollar from immediately collapsing in value. In the end, the existence of more dollars does cause each dollar to purchase less in the future and over time, but the credit system, given its size, is necessarily at the crux of how it all plays out. The debt-to-dollar dilemma is what anchors the dollar's value on a near-term basis. The liabilities are fixed in the sense that a fixed amount of dollars are owed. These liabilities create high present demand for dollars, and the liabilities have claims on real assets, such as cars, homes, real estate developments, or equity in productive companies, etc. For example, if you owed $10,000 on your car and could not repay the debt, not only would you do everything you could to source dollars, but the effective price of your car is anchored to the amount of debt owed to the bank in order to satisfy its claim. It does not matter how many dollars have been created. That claim is real. And more broadly, fixed debt liabilities functionally set the price of existing assets in a system in which debt claims massively exceed the supply of dollars. And especially when it becomes apparent that debts cannot be repaid. At the same time, the system leverage is also what guarantees that the Fed will have to print more dollars in the future. If it did not, the credit system would collapse entirely. The introduction of more dollars in a time of financial crisis or instability is really designed to prevent the credit system from collapsing. The Fed responds to the need for more dollars to service debt-denominated liabilities by supplying more dollars. This is what occurred in 2008, it's what occurred in 2020, and it is what will occur again and again. First, the existence of more dollars allows existing debt levels to be sustained. But then with more dollars floating around, more debt can actually be created. Note that the Fed has increased the supply of dollars by approximately $8 trillion since 2007, but the amount of dollar-denominated debt has increased by $39 trillion over the same period. On a percentage or multiple basis, the amount of dollars has increased by significantly more, but on an absolute basis, the increase in the amount of debt has dwarfed the increase in the supply of dollars. For every dollar that has been printed, more debt has been created. Again, scale and size matter, particularly for the reason that only dollars can repay dollar-denominated debt. On a relative basis, yes, more dollars exist, but there are far more liabilities that need to be funded. Each dollar purchases less over time for the reason that there are more. But at any point that dollars begin to be removed, 
A real problem exists, especially for those short dollars. However, because the system as a whole is functionally insolvent, everyone is impacted, not just those in debt. There is no escaping it. All asset prices are impacted, and everything becomes increasingly volatile when a run on the remaining liquidity in the financial system occurs. It singularly best explains the phenomenon of everything around you that you need day-to-day -day costing more in dollars, while observing asset prices, including Bitcoin, your home, or the stock market, moving in the opposite direction. The goods most needed day-to-day -day for survival, food, water, gas, power, etc., do not become any more abundant or any easier to produce as a result of money being created or money being removed from the financial system. While there is arithmetic consequence to the problem of funding dollar-denominated debt with dollars, the economic engine is massively complex. The U.S. economy is comprised of hundreds of millions of people, connected to supply chains of billions of people, each who have a combination of skills or jobs necessary to deliver very basic goods to the market, and each whose time is finitely scarce, all coordinating their economic activity with dollars. At the end of the day, near-term inflation of goods and services, as well as the intermittent change in asset price levels, is explained by the changes in the money supply. But focusing on the month-to-month -month or year-to-year -year change in any price level would fail to see the forest through the trees. It is the surface level, first derivative impact, any focus on the short term, a year, two, or even decade, necessarily fails to recognize the more fundamental consequence to a highly complex system. Tweet from Ryan Schull Just left the supply store with some flow lines and water injection lines, etc. Prices are so high I'm debating on even drilling any wells next year. No way oil prices stay below $100 through 2023. The manipulation of the money supply distorts economic activity. It distorts the ability for humans to trade. Humans respond to price signals, and as those signals become more volatile and less reliable, the basic function of the currency to coordinate trade breaks down. The marginal goods you need tomorrow and the next day become more valuable relative to everything else, including money, but also to other assets you own like a home or a second home, a car or a second car, and especially any financial asset like a stock or a bond. It is the distinction between assets that have already been produced versus those goods that need to be produced and procured day to day to sustain oneself. The goods necessary day to day become harder to produce as the economic engine breaks down, as trade becomes harder to coordinate, and the problems become magnified in a highly leveraged and centralized system. Imagine the complexity of an economic system with hundreds of millions of workers producing goods and services every day, and then contemplate one in which mass defaults could occur because debt cannot be repaid, and whether those issues might be exacerbated by a central bank massively increasing and decreasing the money supply in a persistent but unpredictable cadence. In practice, money becomes abundant, credit becomes good for nothing, and goods become scarce.
Bitcoin is the solution to inflation. The Fed's monetary system appears at first to be a vicious cycle, something that will always just exist and never end. A roller coaster that someone else put you on but that you can't get off. The cycles of creating money, persistent inflation, and every few years, a financial crisis. Everything becomes more expensive, while everything else feels more out of reach, waiting for the next shoe to drop. The cumulative feeling might best be described as a combination of exhausting and suffocating, particularly at a time when the world seems to be more volatile and the future more uncertain than ever. Matters are made worse when the cause and effect cannot be explained. Without prior understanding, it puts people in a position of not knowing what actions to take, when it will end, or if it will end. Without explanation and without a solution to the problem, it might be very reasonable to assume this vicious cycle will never end. Bitcoin simultaneously being the ultimate solution to the dollar and it not being immune to the dollar is entirely consistent with the nature of the problem. An understanding of one and its challenges necessarily informs the other as a better alternative and how it may be adopted. Bitcoin is competing with the dollar to replace it as the form of money which coordinates trade and commerce. If one were to accept that there were fundamental problems inherent to the dollar, but that it still coordinates practically all economic activity for those that use it, it would stand to reason that any replacement to the dollar would not be immune to its issues during the transitionary period. In an academic world, maybe everyone figures it out at the same time and makes a conscious decision to scrap the old world, adopt the new world, and move on without any consequence to the sins of the past. The dilemma is that money coordinates trade, and trade means the physical manufacture and delivery of goods and services in the real world, which is far more complex than professional economists and academia might suggest. The world cannot drop a bad money and adopt a better one like a single individual can drop a bad habit. It's just not that simple, and that's okay. Today, the dollar still exists, and Bitcoin has a total purchasing power of approximately 0.4% of the U.S. credit system, which itself is a fraction, albeit a large one, of the global financial system. If the Fed reduces the supply of dollars and increases interest rates, the purchasing power of Bitcoin will reasonably decline on an interim basis relative to the dollar, because the entire world still relies on the dollar, including everyone in the dollar economy who has begun adopting Bitcoin. Bitcoin remains relatively small. It is also liquid, and there are very few Bitcoin-denominated debt liabilities on a relative and absolute basis, which means it can be easily sold to source dollars as the supply becomes constrained. In short, dollar inflation can exist, and the purchasing power of Bitcoin can decline at the same time, while the fundamental remains unchanged, that Bitcoin is replacing the dollar as a better form of money to coordinate trade. Bitcoin has fundamental value because of its fixed supply. That is the value proposition a fixed supply of Bitcoin versus an ever-increasing supply of dollars. In 2007, there were $0.9 trillion estimated in circulation. In 2019, this number was estimated by the Fed to be $3.8 trillion, just prior to the most recent monetary expansion. Today, the estimate is $8.9 trillion. 
Dollars are created by the Fed and even more dollars will be created in the future as a necessity to fund all the debt that has accumulated in the U.S. credit system. In 2007, zero Bitcoin existed because Bitcoin did not exist. Bitcoin was launched in 2009 in large part to solve this specific problem. By 2019, 17.9 million Bitcoin were in circulation. Today, 19.2 million Bitcoin are in circulation. The remaining 1.8 million will enter circulation between now and approximately 2138, the next 115 years. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, and that is Bitcoin's true innovation. Whenever something happens in the world, and specifically anything that causes volatility in the price of Bitcoin, I always ask myself, did X change anything about the Bitcoin network's ability to credibly enforce its fixed supply? Now, one might need to know how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply and its relevance in order to then evaluate the relative impact of anything to Bitcoin. But that is the point. Without a prior understanding of how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply or why it's important, it would leave anyone in a precarious position to evaluate any current event or its impact on Bitcoin's fundamental value. Anyone who claims that Bitcoin will fail due to the failures of a few private companies almost certainly does not understand how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply or its consequences. Separately, anyone who claims that Bitcoin is failing on its promise as a hedge to inflation similarly could not tell you how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply. Ask anyone who claims Bitcoin will fail, or otherwise has failed, that rhetorical question. But how does Bitcoin credibly enforce its fixed supply without the need for trust? A fixed supply is the principal contrast Bitcoin provides to all other forms of money. Bitcoin is trustless, compared to the dollar being a trust-based system, and Bitcoin is permissionless, while the dollar is largely a permissioned system. There are other contrasts, but the supply of the currency is the most fundamental. Bitcoin as a trustless and permissionless monetary network would be of little to no value if not for those same properties being necessary to ensure and enforce a fixed supply. But similarly as a system, Bitcoin would not be trustless or permissionless if the currency native to the network were not fixed in supply. The entire value function revolves around the enforcement of a fixed supply. That is what aligns all other economic incentives and allows the aggregate operation to function. The fixed supply is the thing of value to the entire world. In that sense, it is not just what aligns all incentives. It is what creates the incentive. It is why Bitcoin exists. How Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply is the innovation, and at a fundamental level, the most important technical question to understand. In fact, it is a necessary input to have a true bottom-up perspective, not relying on anyone else's word, and it is specifically the subject of Bitcoin not blockchain and Bitcoin is not backed by nothing. However, first understanding why it is relevant is more sequentially important because it informs how it is possible. It might seem circular, but it is not. Any person would necessarily need to understand why a currency that cannot be printed is of value to the world on an individual level before then understanding the incentives of the network and the mechanisms that enforce the fixed supply. 
For example, the statement that Bitcoin is the solution to inflation. Why would the world need a solution to inflation? Is it a problem that needs fixing in the first place? Would a currency with a fixed supply be the answer? The price of everything increasing in dollar terms is a function of more and more money being created. Most everyone recognizes that this is a problem. People seek out different marginal solutions to it. Some seek out hedges, in the traditional sense, but everyone is largely conditioned to understand that the dollars in their bank account will purchase less and less over time and act accordingly, trying to escape the impact of its decline. That is the problem, and everyone finds the best way to deal with the symptoms of it, which is very different from actually solving the problem. It is the distinction between Bitcoin being a hedge to inflation and being the permanent solution to it, such that inflation as a problem no longer exists. Bitcoin permanently eliminates the ability for more money to be created. If the root cause of inflation is the printing of money, the prevention of that mechanism is definitionally the answer or the solution to the problem. The entire world needs a form of money that cannot be printed for the same reason that existing forms of money can be easily printed. It is a need, not a want. But needing something does not make it so. While hedges are designed to protect against the risk of future uncertainty, risk itself is never implicitly knowable. The perception of risk in Bitcoin, and why many believe it to be a hedge to the dollar, is tied to uncertainty. To what extent is it possible to know whether, in fact, Bitcoin's supply is really fixed? To what extent is it a risk or an uncertainty? The skeptics, or even those who might want to know, typically make a few classes of errors. Believe that determining whether Bitcoin has a fixed supply is unknowable. Recognize that it is knowable but believe it is unknowable to them. Or a third, do not recognize that it is the right question to ask and never consider it. In each instance, it leaves Bitcoin in the minds of most who are conscious of it as, at best, a possibility subject to chance. It is, however, knowable, with a defined surface area and an empirical record. It is possible to discern. The first step is recognizing that the 21 million fixed supply is the fulcrum. The next is forming some conception or framework as to how it is enforced. Without that as an anchor or guidepost, it would be impossible to tell what is up or down, north or south, in a sea of noise. No one could reasonably evaluate whether Bitcoin has fundamental value, or how anything, significant or not, impacts Bitcoin without one and then the other. Or implicitly, whether Bitcoin is a risk or a hedge or the solution to inflation. Counterparty failures, the Fed printing money, the Fed reducing the supply of money, inflation, the price of Bitcoin going up, the price of Bitcoin going down, a senator from Boston, etc. How could anyone reasonably determine what is relevant or not in the absence of a defined reference point to check all assumptions against and amid changing information. It is akin to a person lost in the woods or out at sea with no compass to navigate and no sun or north star to guide them, totally hopeless and at a loss. 
there is a very small chance you might get lucky, but it's not a winning strategy. Finding the answers is not obvious or easy. It requires effort and intentionality. But with that knowledge, each person becomes armed to survive all weathers, to evaluate every change in information, to consider each event, and to decide how to react. It puts every person in control of their own destiny in a way that is otherwise not possible or practical. There is also no way around it. Bitcoin adoption occurs as knowledge distributes, not as individuals make reactive and uninformed speculative decisions. Bitcoin can't be a flight to safety, as the term is often used by the financial investing community in a broad-based way, if the world does not understand it. That is the same reason why it can't credibly be a hedge, maybe a gamble, but not a hedge to risk. Bitcoin is not fundamentally a vehicle to offset dollar inflation or to make more dollars, even if some people use it this way. Bitcoin is a currency with a fixed supply capable of facilitating day-to-day -day commerce on a direct and global basis. It is competing with the dollar. If Bitcoin credibly enforces its fixed supply, it is the solution to the dollar and replaces the dollar. If it cannot, it will not and has no fundamental value. The outcome is binary, and the ability for Bitcoin to enforce its fixed supply is independent from the dollar. What is certain is that the Fed will create trillions upon trillions of dollars from this point forward, and that is a problem. Not knowing or not having done the work does not make Bitcoin uncertain. Risk exists on a spectrum. Uncertainty, to some extent, is unavoidable. In high finance, there is talk of a risk-free rate. In a financial sense, nothing is actually risk-free. Certainly not government bonds and definitely not the dollar. Bitcoin being a knowable equation is entirely consistent with the acceptance that nothing is without risk. It does not mean that everyone will come to the same conclusion or that degrees of understanding do not vary. A base level of understanding typically forms through a combination of primary education and real-world lived experiences, but it can only harden by having specifically observed and experienced Bitcoin working firsthand without fail and amid the chaos of a volatile world, which is really only possible as a function of time. Bitcoin working is enforcing its fixed supply on a trustless basis, processing transactions without permission, and necessarily without any central coordination. Each person that figures this out adopts Bitcoin as a standard of value. It becomes the least uncertain good in the market. In a world where nothing is certain, it is death, taxes, and 21 million Bitcoin. There is no silver bullet to understanding Bitcoin or a defined endpoint to learning. That is what makes it difficult. Understanding Bitcoin is detached from any single world event or series of events. Instead, it requires a body of work. The mistake is not beginning the journey for fear of not finding the endpoint. Primed with knowledge, Bitcoin is not a hedge to inflation. It is the solution to it. Without prior understanding, Bitcoin can practically be neither. Gradually, 
Then suddenly, Finn. Let's take a short break before the guys take. Because I want to thank Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is the only other swan that I endorse. And I need you to understand that. We are both swan, and that is the same, but we are different. Because I'm the swan that reads more about Bitcoin than anyone else you know. They are the swan that gets you into Bitcoin simpler than any other service you know. No shitcoins, no fuss, no trading, no timing the market, no confusion, just sound money, sound practices, and a sound understanding of Bitcoin. They will take you from zero to Bitcoiner with automatic purchases and automatic withdrawals straight to your cold card or multi-sig or hardware wallet of your choice, whatever your setup is. And I got to tell you, as someone who has been doing this for a very long time, if you want a good night's sleep in this space, there is no warm, comforting blanket like knowing that you are accumulating Bitcoin all the time and it is being sent to your keys and you own it. When the shitcoins implode, when the services get hacked, when the exchanges turn out to be grossly insolvent in selling you paper Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about that. You, are, you can sleep soundly, you can look and read about those events, and you can be like, damn, that must suck for the people who are exposed to that. But I have more Bitcoin today, I have more Bitcoin this week, and it is behind my keys because I buy automatically and I withdraw automatically. And I didn't buy any shitcoins anyway because I went to Swan and I found out what the hell I was doing and why that was a terrible idea. So check out swanbitcoin.com slash guy because the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know recommends Swan Bitcoin because it'll get you into Bitcoin better than any other service you know. You see, we're the same, but different. Now guess where you'll find all of this magical information. All right, and that concludes number 18, the 18th installment of the Gradually Then Suddenly series. Um, and he's got a little uh, editor's note about value for value, and I'll read it really quick because it's super short. If you found this to be valuable, please consider contributing Bitcoin on a value for value va basis using the BTC Pay Server link below. The link below will generate an on-chain Bitcoin address and you can contribute any amount you wish. I'll have the link in the show notes, by the way. Um, I spent a lot of time on this essay because I felt it was timely and important. When I began writing gradually, then suddenly, I did so because I thought others would find value in the ideas that I had to share, and writing was an efficient way to leverage my time. Rather than explain the same concepts on a one-to-one -one basis, writing allowed me to share ideas with more people and ultimately allowed me to save time. Hopefully, it will save you some time, too. Rather than having to explain this to a friend, colleague, or family member, you can simply share the post. Adam Curry, the podfather himself, was inspiration for me trailing value for value. It is impossible to know how valuable this information is to each reader. Pricing content is difficult for that reason. More generally, you cannot know how valuable an understanding of Bitcoin really is until after the fact. Rather than charge readers in advance, pay what you think it is worth to you. Value for value. A special thanks to Will Cole, Michael Goldstein, Phil Geiger, and Marty Bent for reviewing and providing valuable feedback. Also, a thanks to Ghost, Voltage, and BTC Pay for providing the infrastructure and Marty Bent for the consulting. Finally, I'm currently working on finalizing a book version of Gradually Then Suddenly, which will be a collection of the past essays in the series written from 2019 to 2020, 
From time to time, I will drop new essays here. Hope you enjoy. Best, Parker. So definitely contribute um, if you have never contributed to Parker's stuff. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've read all 18, unless I missed one somewhere. Um, but uh, I am a huge fan of the Gradually Then Suddenly series. And uh, as you know, I'm pretty sure we have every single one of them in audio on the show. Uh, and I, I also really like the framing of this one. And we read Stephen Lubka's piece on uh, Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. And he attempts to reframe about how it's an inflation against the increase in the money supply, similar to how the S&P 500 or how housing is likely to adjust to the fluctuating money supply, or that these assets specifically change in price, go up in price, in relation to the flood of money in the system. And essentially, Bitcoin is likely to move and has historically moved in relationship to, though not not in any perfect sense, it hasn't responded or correlated to almost anything, but it does move. And Parker makes the same distinction here, is that it it is likely to move with all of these other assets that respond to interest rate and credit availability. And then, of course, the amount of dollars, the amount of liquid dollars that available available to service those liabilities and to purchase those assets and the decisions to purchase those assets, which are based on the expected degradation in the value of the dollar. But this is one of those reasons why I think there's a lot of narratives around Bitcoin that I think are mixed bags in the sense that they partially explain something, but you have to have, and Parker talks about it in this piece, is that you have to have a really strong foundation of understanding why that is. People are only going to see, if you argue that Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation, which I'm sure I've argued in the past just as a way to try to frame it for somebody like a, a normie or some traditional finance person who just is thinking in that mode, you can say, you know, Bitcoin is likely to go up with other assets because you can't create more of it. So if a lot of dollars flood into the system, you could expect it to rise. But the, the traditional or the typical person is going to hear Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation and they're going to see, you know, day to day prices going up, CPI going up 10 percent and Bitcoin's going to go down and they're going to be like, well, this is a terrible hedge against inflation. It's like, well, because it's not a hedge against CPI. CPI. Consumer price inflation is a totally different phenomenon than the increase in the money supply. And I really like Parker's framing. It is such a good job of kind of laying out that distinction here. There was a section that I thought was particularly poignant in kind of summing up one of his positions. It says, again, scale and size matter particularly for the reason that only dollars can repay dollar-denominated debt. And here he's just talking about how the amount of liabilities in the system increase. The, the increase in the amount of debt is an increase in the demand for dollars. So price inflation and asset price inflation is connected to that. It is absolutely a result of money printing, but particularly consumer goods and so much of the demand for the dollar is tied up in having to pay off dollar-denominated debt. So back to the quote, on a relative basis, yes, more dollars exist, but there are far more liabilities that need to be funded. 
Each dollar purchases less over time for the reason that there are more. But at any point that dollars begin to be removed, a real problem exists, especially for those short dollars. However, because the system as a whole is functionally insolvent, everyone is impacted, not just those in debt. There is no escaping it. All asset prices are impacted, and everything becomes increasingly volatile when a run on the remaining liquidity in the financial system occurs. It singularly best explains the phenomenon of everything around you that you need day-to-day costing more in dollars while observing asset prices, including Bitcoin, your home, or the stock market, moving in the opposite direction. So just in, and this is something you talked about in a different section, just in the overwhelming insolvency, the overwhelming leverage in the system where just the obviously pinpointed, the clearly uh, uh, denotated dollar-fixed debt is 10 to 1 to the supply of dollars in the system. So as he says in this, in this quote, because the system as a whole is functionally insolvent, everyone is impacted, not just those in debt. What this essentially means is that 90% of the value of everything is because of 90% leverage on every dollar, which, is, which means as soon as we realize there's no savings to back up the supposed price, the supposed value of any of these assets, S&P 500, the housing market, like any of that stuff. It is a consequence of the multiples of the money supply created by debt. And just like Bitcoin can't escape the, the leverage in the system of the crypto world, of FTX selling paper Bitcoin, of all of these institutions levered to the hilt in tokens and garbage, and then that unravels and what happens? Bitcoin takes a massive hit. In a very similar way, that is all assets compared to the dollar when we're talking about the dollar insolvency because the system is fundamentally, systemically insolvent. There's no, there's no repairing it because it's how it's designed. It is designed as an insolvency that is just perpetual. So when you have a massive deleveraging event, what you have is the, inhibit, you, the breakdown in the ability to trade, the breakdown in the ability to communicate value to each other while people are rushing to dump any of their inflated assets, any of their liquid assets, in order to shore up what they need day to day, the ongoing processes, processes of the economy, which have now been, it's like throwing molasses into gears instead of oil is that you just you're locking up the engine you're making everything turn slower and grind harder just to do the exact same output as before everything just got weighted down massively by a it's like wading through water up to your knees and trying to sprint that feeling is that that's the effect that's the that's the effect of the constant fluctuation of the value of money on the ability to trade and productively and to produce effectively and in a robust manner and most importantly it's it causes massive misallocation in what you actually invest in and what you actually produce because you don't actually have any clean or certain investment vehicle to weigh it against 
You know, everything is relative in the market. All value is relative. It's subjective, so it necessarily can only mean in it can only be valuable in relation to something else of value. So the point of money is to become the most liquid and the most certain degree of supply of concrete monetary assurance. This is exactly how much of this good it is. It, there is. This is exactly what it costs. It's very easy to trade. It doesn't matter if you have a million of them or one of them. They are proportionally valuable in all of their units. Whereas, you know, a, a whole house is not worth, you know, a hundredth of a house a hundred times. A hundredth of a house is basically useless. It's just a, you know, a couple of two-befores, which is not worth very much at all. It's worth a whole lot more after you turn it into some sort of structure. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's not the case for money. That's why money, money is exactly the value of the sum of its parts. Because it is a trade facilitator, it is a network good, not a good in and of itself. You don't consume it for anything. And so much of that perceived value is in the network itself and the understanding of it's the distribution of that knowledge of Bitcoin as a good money or as a certain money. And so going back to why I think a lot of these things are kind of a mixed bag when it comes to using Bitcoin as an inflation hedge for its explanatory power is that it dismisses or just doesn't leave room for the fact that the most important driver of price is the network adoption and the acceptance of bitcoin and i don't mean that in the acceptance of bitcoin as um like is walmart accepting it at their store i mean it like as a social acceptance as a as a knowledge as an understanding of what bitcoin is and that bitcoin is a part of the environment of legitimate monetary goods but these ideas persist because they're useful and true in a sense but they're very, very incomplete. They're trying to apply, you know, one explicit perspective that you think someone else can understand, but it's without a foundation of why that matters and why that's downstream from what's important rather than what's actually important. So if you're arguing, if we're arguing that, you know, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, well, then when CPI inflation, you know, goes and they're like, oh, well, you know, 10, CPI is 10%. Why isn't it up 10%? Why didn't it protect me? And it's like, well, now you have to go back and undo what you did because they don't have any monetary foundation to understand what the point of getting to the point of Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Like what came before that? Because that's not Bitcoin's value. That's a very secondary aspect of what Bitcoin can be in, the con in comparison to a money that's printed heavily. Bitcoin is a money that is not printed heavily. Bitcoin is a money with a static supply. So in the terms of something where there's four trillion new dollars or euro or whatever it is dumped into the market, the asset Bitcoin should relatively increase in price. And then another way that we call it a hedge um, is one of the ones that actually Parker starts out about uh, Chamath talking about it being a schmucks insurance. And that's another interesting, like, it, again, it's true. And that's also something that I've used to argue is that it is an alternative to the fiat infrastructure. So that if you're wrapped up in dollars or you're wrapped up in 
only being able to transact through banks or ACH and a bank goes down or ACH transfers or SWIFT, you know, has a disaster or gets hacked or whatever it is, you know, Jesus, we're in multiple wars between multiple superpowers, um, both cold wars and warm wars and pretty kind of hot wars especially from a currency and financial sense like the capital controls the trade wars there's so much going on the idea of swift just not working one day because the infrastructure itself the communication systems have been flooded or blown up totally reasonable so if you don't have alternative infrastructure you could be in a tight spot you know my bitcoin and my, you know, lightning wallets aren't going to stop working if Swift goes down. I'm going to be like, oh my God, that sucks. And, you know, the, the price of everything will be massively affected because you're talking about a breakdown in the dominant monetary system of the planet. But nonetheless, I can still transact. But again, it probably looks inconsistent to somebody who has no foundation for understanding these things. And, you know, this is why everybody's like short term. It's so crazy how much short term thinking there is, you know. Like that there is no way to assess Bitcoin's value outside of its price. That's why when it goes up to 60,000, people are like, I wish I bought it at 16,000. And then it goes all the way back down to 16,000. They're like, well, this is worthless. It's only $16,000. It's like, well, that means it's $60,000 and at $16,000, you have no idea what this is worth or why. You have zero foundation at all. You're just responding to the group. You're it's 100% a social impression as to whether or not something has value. So when people are buying it a lot, you think it's valuable. And when people aren't buying it at all, it's not valuable. But that misses the whole point of how to judge what Bitcoin is, how to judge Bitcoin as a monetary good. And the, the framing that Parker Lewis, that they think is such a perfect, perfect example of why the narrative of a hedge against inflation is common but maybe ill-advised is that the quote is bitcoin is not a hedge against inflation it is the permanent solution to inflation and those are two very different things so the reason i think this is a far more clear explanation and it has the right framing is because the idea of a hedge of in, against inflation is that you would only use something while you were expecting inflation. And then you would drop it. It would be this temporary thing that supposedly only responds to inflation when the value of it is that you have all of these assets, all of these monetary goods that inflate and are centrally controlled and are permissionless, and you have one that is not. Like, I'm not going to hedge against the crappy monies with good money and then go back to the shitty money after, you know, it does its job for the six months in which US is, the U.S. dollar is inflating the worst. I'm not going to go back to fiat when I expect inflation to slow down. That's a hugely neutered and silly idea of what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is a new money. Bitcoin is a better money. It is a... It is a leap forward in the, the trustless nature and value of monetary goods. To argue it as simply an inflation hedge is to suggest that I would store it away somewhere and never use it, develop it, or take advantage of anything that it offers in any way until I might think inflation is going to show up. You know, Bitcoin is 
It is an insanely capable, global, always-on, fully audited monetary network. High integrity, stateless. Completely apolitical system. It is so astonishingly valuable, it is stupid. This analogy, calling it just a hedge against inflation, or using that as like kind of a foundation for why, should, why someone should consider it valuable, is kind of like saying... An analogy. It's like saying that you should get a smartphone and you should keep it in the trunk of your car with like your breaker bar and your car jack just in case you ever need to call somebody while you're traveling or during an emergency. But otherwise, you're going to do the normal thing and you're just going to go back home and use a recorded landline that's hanging on the wall in the kitchen. It's like, yeah, no. Like, sure, a smartphone is a hedge against if you're away from your landline. But your smartphone is fundamentally orders of magnitude better than your land. You're going to throw away your landline. In fact, you're going to have it hooked up and you're going to continue to pay for your service or your subscription for like two years. And then you're going to realize one day that you haven't used your landline phone in like forever and that you can't actually look up Google Maps or email anybody on it. And you're like, why the hell do I still have this thing? This is costing me like 20 bucks a month. I really need to cancel this subscription. That is how fiat is going to go. And that, I think, is the lack of power in referring to Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. And that is as someone who has used that argument before and has tried to appeal to people with that framing. But it, it puts you in a position to then have to justify later when 10% CPI hits. And people don't even have, don't even have a foundation for actually understanding why that's not inflation, like that's not the issue at hand, and that is not at all what Bitcoin is going to protect against, and also that the understanding and acceptance of Bitcoin, the use of Bitcoin as money on a global sphere, and the use of Bitcoin as protection against the poison of fiat and regime, you know, authoritarian regimes and capital controls and all of these things, the integrity and uh sovereign ownership that Bitcoin can provide. This knowledge is ultimately the driver of Bitcoin adoption. This understanding of Bitcoin is its foundation. So there's another quote that I, that I saved, and I almost didn't agree with it at first, but he makes a good argument later on in the piece, which is true. That's hard. I, I, I don't know. I go back and forth. Um, but I'll go ahead and read the quote. It says, All value in Bitcoin derives from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million, and it is possible to know or to form an understanding as to how Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply and whether it is credible. That is knowable, and it is the most fundamental basis to explain how and why Bitcoin is competing with the dollar as money. Every inflation hedge is intended to earn more dollars or appreciate in dollar terms to offset inflation, whereas Bitcoin is structurally designed as a replacement, which is a critical distinction. So a hedge against inflation is something that specifically counters the potential inflation. So like, like a short on the dollar, the value of the dollar, and, or like say, let's say you were making a... Um, a deal in, you know, barrels of oil or uh, gold bars or, you know, some asset. Let's say you're, you're just buying plastic or metal for 
some uh, business deal, you're making a product, right? And you're doing this overseas. And in the matter of the next four or five months, you want to be able to, you need to be able to set the price that you're getting this at because the end product needs to make a certain amount. And you could benefit if the price of those commodities fall. But um, uh, the, like, let's say the metal or whatever that you need for the item, for the product, if the price of that uh, metal falls over the next five months, then that would be great for you, but you don't want to take that risk. That's not the point. You're making a product and you're making a margin on that product. So what you do is you put a, you buy a call option or a futures contract on it to buy it at the current price, at the price today, because you know you can make 6% margin on the product that you sell at the end of the line if you can buy it for this amount. And you don't really care what it does for the next six months. But... Let's say in the next six months it goes down. Well, you're still buying it because you bought a futures contract. You're still buying it at the old price. So let's say it was like $70 a pound or whatever it was, and it went down to 60 Well, you're still paying 70 but that doesn't matter because you've got a product that you're hoping to sell and you're you know, making long-term deals. You know, This is a you know, four-year production process or something. Well, you know you can make X amount of it at $70, so you keep it. That's not that big of a deal. You hedged against potential inflation, um, but you lost. Now, if it goes up to $80, if it goes up to $90, it did its job. It did hedge against inflation because you can now borrow it. You can now buy that asset at $70. That contract, that futures contract, is a hedge against inflation. In that sense, Bitcoin is not that at all. Bitcoin is an exit from the system that is constantly being inflated from the monetary system that is being cheated. It's an exit from the cheat. So another analogy to kind of simplify why this is not the good argumentation, and I think Parker makes a really good argument here, is that insurance against your house burning down is a hedge against your house burning down. That's a hedge. Because if the house burns down, you get the value of the house. A house built out of some revolutionary, new, completely fireproof material is not a hedge against your house burning down. It's simply a house that won't burn down. But it's a different house. It's not a hedge against your house burning down. It's replacing your easy-to-burn-down-made-out-of-wood house to your can't-burn-down-made-out-of-fireproof material house. You have to move out of your wood timber house and into your fireproof house and you don't go back to the other house when you think the chance of it burning down is like lower because, I don't know, it's raining or something. And even though it doesn't quite fit the analogy, there's actually something to be said of it being like a monetary hedge or a value hedge is that if a whole bunch of houses start burning down, well, your fireproof house might go up in value as an asset similar to all the money printing, is going to make a, uh, a good with a extremely fixed or extremely limited supply go up in value relative to or in purchasing or in terms of the purchasing power of a good that is increasing heavily in supply. But there's another great quote that, and you know, this kind of goes back to the original point of just people just have no foundation for it. They don't understand inflation separate from CPI. 
They, most people don't even think, people just think houses go up in value. They don't even realize that the value of the house is not going up. It's simply a reflection of the decreasing value of the dollar. Same with the S&P, stocks, like everything that we think of as long-term savings assets. These things would not just endlessly go up in a fixed money economy. These things have developed monetary premiums and people have started to leverage them for additional income because they're just avoiding inflation with all of these assets. But the quote here, um, in fact, I'm going to read both of these. I'm going to read two of these. They're spaced out a little bit, but they're both relevant. So what principally confuses people is how the increase in the supply of dollars is transmitted through the economy and specifically to the, to the dollar price of real goods and services. This is one place where common sense prevails. If more dollars are created, each dollar will purchase less because the creation of more dollars cannot and does not increase the supply of real goods and services available in the economy. It's crazy how hard it is to get some people who have been propagandized and or, I mean, I, I just beat over the head with this idea that it incentivizes investment, that it causes more people to invest in producing more products because there's more consumer demands. We consume more stuff and therefore we have to make more stuff. I mean, the mental gymnastics of trying to make it seem like writing down on a piece of paper, like all you're doing is writing down a number on a piece of paper. It's, it's literally writing down, we have more stuff on a piece of paper and giving it to someone to take stuff to consume something and then saying that that incentivize that that creates more production what you actually did is you consumed more stuff you consumed more stuff temporarily than you produced you decreased the amount of goods in society so let's say there are 10 people who made 10 sandwiches and therefore have the savings of 10 sandwiches worth of dollars and 10 people who did not make sandwiches are given new money so that they can go out and buy goods and they buy up those 10 sandwiches. What happened? We are 10 sandwiches poorer because those people consumed things that they didn't produce. And now the 10 people who produced the sandwiches have nothing to eat. That is what actually happened. When you printed money, you consumed resources that you shouldn't have. And the people who actually produced the resources got it taken from them. The value was stolen. And to then say that this incentivizes them to produce more is literally like saying burning somebody's house down incentivizes them to produce more houses. No, it just, it, it just, they just have to replace the house that they once had. That doesn't make us wealthier. Burning down your house is not going to make you wealthier. I promise you. Please don't do it. Neither does printing more paper create anything additional for the, the economy. And every single time it's just a complete... It's halting any attempt to think about where the resources came from, about the second step, about what wasn't seen. When you print money and give it to somebody to consume stuff, the question is, where did it come from? What was going to be spent? It's just like the, the um, broken window fallacy that Krugman goes on about, or the idea that a war is beneficial to the economy. It creates prosperity, which it's just like, why would we stop? Why would we ever stop? 
doing those things. Like, and and if it, if it's actually the war, if it's us all getting together and making battleships and tanks and then blowing them up, why wouldn't we just do that rather than going to war with some country and killing all of the all of these random people in this population halfway around the world? Why wouldn't we just make a bunch of battleships and you know put them out off the shore and blow them up? Why wouldn't we just do that perpetually? We would be infinitely rich. Why don't we just go through, if, if breaking a few windows causes a production, is, is an incentive for economic prosperity to increase because there's more economic activity, well, why don't we just go through and burn down Main Street? Of every town, in fact. Like, why wouldn't more of a good thing be better? The question is, what were they going to spend? If you go through and you break somebody's freaking window... The question is, what were they going to spend that money on that they now have to replace a window they already had? You know, if I was going to go out and get some coffee or some food or maybe I was going to buy a new mic. I wanted a mic that makes my you know, podcast sound better or hell, I'm trying to build a studio downstairs. I wanted to invest money into a studio so that I can have a dedicated working space. I can have my setup ready to go. It would save me so much time and it would make me so much more productive if I could have a dedicated space. That would be great. We're spending a lot of time and resources trying to make that happen. That's a very critical thing that we are trying to do. If somebody came and burned down my house that wouldn't incentivize economic activity. That wouldn't be that wouldn't make anything prosperous for anyone because I'm instead rebuilding my house instead of building a basement and a studio. So instead of the person who makes design studios or makes, you know, soundproof wall panels or you know, a green screen or all of the things that I'm trying to do and make and the setup and you know, new computer that I'm trying to do for my studio, instead of them getting the money, a contractor gets the money to rebuild a house that we already had because some jackass burned it down. That is the broken window fallacy, and that's how easy it is to obliterate it. It is stupid. It is wrong. Destroying things doesn't make more stuff appear. It just destroys stuff. Writing down numbers on pieces of paper, writing down that we have more wealth, cooking the accounting books does not mean we have more stuff and it does not incentivize more stuff being created. It makes somebody poorer, which makes life harder, which appears to be economic activity. A consistent money, a money that is static in supply, that is a sound, high integrity monetary good of extremely limited supply would mean that the value you produced, the stuff that you contributed into society in the past, is exactly how much, or relatively, how much you got back. And the reason it might actually deflate over time, or increase in purchasing power, is because your lack of consumption of those goods leaves it available in the economy for other people who make the economy as a whole more productive which means you have invested resources that are owed to you, actual resources, not the money. The money is just a tally for the resources you are owed. You don't build houses out of money. You don't make a machine. Out, with Gears don't spin better because you shove a bunch of money into them. Like You don't need money to make a machine to print shirts. Like Money is just there to facilitate trade. It is to account for the value that has been created and coordinate con the continued production of additional value. It is the one good that isn't consumed in any process. It's only traded. So the reason that 
it's not only naturally good and beneficial, but naturally occurring that a limited monetary good is likely to increase in purchasing power is because if you make 30 machines that and then you know produce them into the economy that make more stuff then you don't consume 30 machines or destroy them or whatever it is you don't consume all of that relevant value that you just produced into the economy instead you leave those machines for other people you let other people run those machines with the resources and the inputs needed to run them to produce other goods. And what you do is you just keep a promise. You keep a promise from society that you're going to be able to get that equivalent value back later. And the longer you wait, the more society becomes productive with the resources you made available to them. And thus, the more purchasing power you have, the more you can get back because you saved money instead of consuming stuff that other people needed. And there was a really great quote from uh, Parker in this. It says, quote, all else being equal in the context of money over time, uh, the, or excuse me, inflation over time, the loss of value of money, all else being equal, it amounts to a barrel of oil produced today purchasing less than a barrel of oil in the future. The incentive structure breaks entirely when money is created at no cost, and the problem is not static. As more time passes and more money is created, the purchasing power of value delivered at various points in the past degrades further and further until it eventually purchases nothing of comparable value or time to produce. In substance, it results in people having delivered value in the past and never having the value returned. It's just being robbed. It's not good for the economy. It doesn't facilitate economic activity. It doesn't increase pros prosperity. It doesn't make value communicate better. It makes all of those things worse. It is just being robbed. Inflation, specifically by central authorities, is nothing but absolutely 100% an economic poison. There is no benefit from it. And I think one of the easiest empirical and historically consistent things to demonstrate this is that the most successful and most adopted money, monetary good, always gravitated towards the one with the least inflation, the least natural inflation. As a natural good, it is independent. It's judged by you know, the laws of the universe and the physical provable inability to produce more of it at low cost and the lowest inflation means it has the highest integrity that it is that you're going to get back the portion of contribution that you made into society later but there's a couple other i don't quite have the time to go into a couple of things that i wanted to hit um i do really like i still do really like um uh, Parker's explanation here, I think is one of the best ways to, or the clearest explanations on the idea of how the dollar-denominated debt assets and then day-to-day -day goods and day-to-day -day, like production processes, why these things move differently in relation to the increase in the money supply and how they affect each other. I thought there were a lot of different... Um, sections in fact i will read this quote screw it it says 
these liabilities create high, just talking about like the massive, massively overlevered dollar denominated liabilities that are, you know, roughly 10 to 1 of the amount of dollars available in the economy. So these liabilities create high present demand for dollars, and the liabilities have claims on real assets, such as cars, homes, real estate developments, or equity and productive companies, etc. For example, if you owed $10,000 on your car and could not repay the debt, not only would you do everything you could to source dollars, but the effective price of your car is anchored to the amount of debt owed to the bank in order to satisfy its claim. It does not matter how many dollars have been created. That claim is real. And more broadly, fixed debt liabilities functionally set the price of existing assets in a system in which debt claims massively exceed the supply of dollars. And especially when it becomes apparent that debts cannot be repaid. I just thought this was such a simple way or such a good imagery on trying to make sense of how and why certain assets and uh, prices move so aggressively and counter move, move against each other in different um, conditions with the change in the money supply. Is that if dollars themselves become scarce, or more importantly, if the liabilities that are currently owed increase in financing costs, that means the demand for the ability to buy new assets, the, the scope of potential market that is able to afford these assets on a higher financed, on a more expensive debt when debt is already scarce, versus the number of people who desperately need dollars in order to maintain the liabilities they already have. So what do they do? They scramble. They desperately try to get dollars, as, as many dollars as they can. They raise prices. But there's also something that he points out in this quote that I thought was really great and a lot of people don't think about. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of try to argue yeah, vaguely. I think most people don't think this really. Um, but that there won't be any Bitcoin-denominated debt. Um, and I think that's really serious, silly. I mean, there will absolutely be credit in a Bitcoin market. The, the problem is, or the difference is, is that there will be probably a very, very small fraction, like 5% or so of the credit that we see in the dollar market. Because 95% of the investments made with debt are not actually productive. They, they don't actually have additional value productive value um, return on the investment. They have a nominal return on investments, like a house. Like if you buy and build a house and then three years later sell it for more money, it's not because your house produced a bunch of extra stuff or your house was worth more because land got scarcer or something. It's because the dollar got worth less. So suddenly that is actually something that is unproductive, that degraded over those three years, that you know maybe had a couple of things breaking on it now after you've used it for a few years and there's wear and tear and there's normal weather, maybe you had a bad storm come through and rip off some shingles. What actually got less valuable realistically appeared to be a productive investment. So you wasted capital. Unless, of course, you just needed a place to live. You needed it for its actual utility. 
That means in a debt, excuse me, in a Bitcoin-denominated society, only those things that are actually productive, actually extremely valuable as a, uh, as a, it will produce more than you put into it, um, productive enterprise, will be worth a, a, uh, a debt denominated in a deflationary asset. But here's the thing is that deflation of the currency, deflation of Bitcoin post-hyper-Bitcoinization, post a Bitcoin-denominated world, will only be the aggregate production of the economy. So all you need to do for the debt to be worthwhile is to beat the average productive output, the average innovative increase of any productive enterprise, which means investment is actually realigned perfectly. If it's net productive... If it is more productive than what the average person can do with that capital, it's going to be a positive return on investment. If it's less, then you should have just not used up that capital. You should have just had someone else make that investment because they were going to make the economy more productive than you were, or you were just going to break even. And now you can't pay for the time that you borrowed somebody else's resources because it went up in it increased in value 3% because the economy is 3% more productive. Again, in this scenario, the deflation of a sound currency in that economy is actually a brilliant indicator of the overall productive and uh, valuable growth of the economic system. But the long-term debts help stabilize prices. And I thought that was a really interesting point that people don't think about, you, you know, or I guess it's not often just addressed pointedly. Like one thing I just kind of refer to is in a very general sense, in a very broad sense is price stability comes with price setting, which comes with, you know, a extremely liquid market for all of the goods it is priced in. So if we had, you know, a market for, you know, if all TVs in the world were set in terms of sats, well, then when there's an economic downturn or an economic increase, when you have like a fluctuation in the, in the purchasing power of Bitcoin for whatever reason, well, the prices of goods, you know, if there's a 5% move in the middle of the day on the dollar, on any currency, you can still go to the store and they don't change prices yet. Prices change slowly. Prices are sticky. Wages are extremely sticky. Rents are sticky. There's a lot of prices that are very, very slow to change. They're not, they don't just respond to spot price on the market. You know, if, if, it was, if that was the case, well, then the dollar moved today. You should be able to go to the store and get something for a couple of cent more or a couple of cent less. Do th does that happen? No. Target still sells the thing for $9.99 or whatever it is, no matter what the dollar markets do right now. But if it moved by 50%, you can bet your ass by the end of the week, they're going to change their price. But it's reflective, or it's reflexive. It's a feedback loop. The price of the good actually lowers, and specifically as well, the price of long-term denominated debt and you know debt claims on an asset basically are massive resistance to the prices of to the monetary prices shifting too much too quickly. And in a similar way, the lack of that in something like Bitcoin means that you have to, you just price everything in dollars. So 
you don't actually price things in sats. You, well, it depends on the thing. I think uh, there's actually a lot of great examples. Like one of the things I do is I do price things in sats, but they're very small things. They're like small favors. They're you know audiobook things. Is I just I'm just gonna sell this for five thousand sats. I don't really care what the value. If it goes up twenty percent or it goes down forty percent, I don't really care. I just want five thousand sats for the audiobook or the task I'm trying to get done or the favor I'm doing for somebody. Like I just kind of have like these set things in my mind of like, all right, this is a pretty big one. I'm going to give somebody 50,000 sats. This is like a major project. I'm going to give you 500,000 sats or a million sats, you know, that sort of thing. But typically it's easier to do on the small side because it's, I think it, I think it would naturally start from the ground up. Obviously the bigger things with the more inputs and the more, you know, moving parts, um, have to adjust to all of the relevant costs and the time involved. Whereas something really, really small, you can kind of keep more consistent. And then as those things develop consistent prices and start to get a little bit sticky, well, then the higher order production of the thing, like the production of my audiobook or, you know, the next good in line that's a derivative of those other goods or made with the um, other pieces of the puzzle or the little favors or whatever that you put together, maybe you can start pricing those based on all the help that you got from all the other people that are set in, you know, just a small amount of time and a set price in sats. So in a very general sense, in a very broad sense, yes, it's liquidity. Yes, it's how much trade and commerce and uh, how, how much, you know, available is available on the order book so that you can buy and sell how much, how many billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin can you buy and sell before you actually move it visibly in the market price. But it's also how much of its value is denominated in actual economic activity, in actual goods and services, rather than merely speculation on an open market, on a stock market, or compared to other fiat currencies. So that was a pretty long tangent, but that was just like a, a point that I thought was really interesting, is, or in regards to price stability of a monetary good. Um, but uh, the last quotes I want to hit says, At the end of the day, near-term inflation of goods and services, as well as the intermittent change in asset price levels, is explained by the changes in the money supply. But focusing on the month-to-month or year-to-year change in any price level would fail to see the forest through the trees. It is the surface level, first derivative impact. Any focus on the short term, a year, two, or even a decade, necessarily fails to recognize the more fundamental consequence to a highly complex system. So, in the short term, it's there are so many moving parts, and this is just something that's fundamentally misunderstood on how many different levels and time spans certain economic activity happens. And I, and I like his simple breakdown of just kind of the idea of there's short-term economic activity, there's mid-term economic activity, and there's long-term pricing, long-term liabilities, and long-term projects. But the incredible complexity and layers upon layers and the millions of people and the billions of interactions and the trillions of different decisions and trade-offs made 
all the time. Slowly move information in different ways and some are some correlate in the same direction, some are inverse relationships through so many different avenues and different mechanisms and on different time scales. But it all goes back to the change in the money supply. The change in the money supply is ultimately the cause of all of it. But if you're looking at any of the short-term activity, if you're looking at Bitcoin over the last six months or the last year or uh, you know anything that happens after there's a new CPI inflation report in the next two weeks, you're, to- you're, not look- you're not even close to looking at fundamentally what's happening or seeing anything close to the actual consequences to what fundamentally occurred, to the major move in the money supply. It's the equivalent of looking at any particular leaf on a tree and trying to judge global wind currents or something. Like a, a leaf is going to blow back and forth frantically in every possible direction in the middle of a hurricane. It twists and turns, it moves in the direction that the branch moves, which might be completely against the wind if something broke off or a tree fell down, etc., etc. It's going to be absolute chaos, and you're not going to be able to determine wind speed or direction of like the jet stream, even though that might perfectly explain why that area is being hit by a hurricane. But that leads me, it's relevant to the last quote, um, even though it's more specifically about Bitcoin. But I just thought this was, this was just a really, really great quote. Bitcoin being a knowable equation is entirely consistent, consistent with the acceptance that nothing is without risk. It does not mean that everyone will come to the same conclusion or that degrees of understanding do not vary. A base level of understanding typically forms through a combination of primary education and real-world lived experiences, but it can only harden by having specifically observed and experienced Bitcoin working firsthand without fail and amid the chaos of a volatile world, which is really only possible as a function of time. Bitcoin's greatest advantage is the fact that it will keep going block by block every 10 minutes, producing its results, having a fixed money supply, continuing to be secure every day, every week, every month, every year. It will prove itself. It is just a function of time, and people will understand it through it through experience. That is how people learn everything. Very, very, very rarely, and only a very, very, very tiny portion of any community is going to understand and embrace something before they get to see it in their hand or understand or experience its value for themselves. But here's the thing: is Bitcoin not only will continue to prove improve itself and basically provide all of the things that Bitcoin provides better, build better systems, provide greater monetary assurance, provide greater price stability, which it has continued to do. Even throughout this seeming chaotic environment, it is less chaotic and less volatile than it has been. In the, it, this is, continues to be true. Every time we move forward, 
Time is on our side. It is here proving every single day that Bitcoin is what it claims to be. But here's the other thing, is the flip side, is that as Bitcoin gets better, as Bitcoin continues to prove its case, continues to work, continues to have permissionless ownership, sovereign ownership and permissionless transactions, and it continues to be global and it continues to produce blocks without fail, the fiat debt cycle is going to get shorter. The chaos and the inflation is going to get worse. At the same time that Bitcoin is going to get better and better at its job, fiat is getting worse and worse and worse. And I've probably been saying this since like the third episode of this show. All Bitcoin has to do is keep working and survive. So, here's to, here's to Bitcoin's survival. Um, <laughs> we will close that out and we will close this week. Uh, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed Parker Lewis's addition to gra the Gradually Then Suddenly series. And I am super stoked about the book that is going to be really, really awesome. Um, and he has put together one of the best, one of the most comprehensive of every single topic, every single idea that you could hit about Bitcoin. Uh, just, just phenomenal. The Gradually Then Suddenly series, if you haven't listened to them, they're just that good. Um, definitely go back and listen to 1 through 17. Um, I will, uh, uh, man, I don't even know where the collection of the whole, to all of them is anymore. I used to have them on when I was still the cryptoeconomy.com. I'll see if I can't find it. I'll, I'll get together. I'll do a search on the, the Bitcoin Audible library on bitcoinaudible.com. Check the show notes. I'll have what I can if you want to dig back into all of those. Uh, they are phenomenal, and I highly, highly recommend um, every single one of them. And a huge thank you to Parker for writing again. Um, it's been a little while since he's had a contribution to Gradually Then Suddenly, and it's exciting. This was another really, really good one. So with that, we'll close it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to CoinKite and the Cold Card, and to Fold the app, the debit card, the sats back on everything. I just had my big purchase uh, every month, my biggest expense, and I got 2% on it. In the last few days, or I guess right there at the end is like December 30th, um, I got my tax loss harvesting done with Swan, which I'm super excited about, so I'll get to write off my losses. They broke that all down in their newsletter. They're a phen phenomenal resource for that sort of thing. Um, and then CoinKite for keeping all of us safe. All my great hardware wallets, the open dimes, the tap signers, just amazing Bitcoin security devices. And of course, they all make this show happen. So thank you, thank them, and I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. TikTok next block. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. Inflation is probably the most important single factor in that vicious circle wherein one kind of government action makes more and more government control necessary. For this reason, all those who wish to stop the drift toward increasing government control should concentrate their effort 
on Monetary Policy F. A. Hayek This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.